1: Hi, it's Besha. Usually I'm here on the Slow Newscast where each week we bring you a new investigation. This week I'm also moonlighting on another of our tortoise shows. It's called The News Meeting and like the Slow Newscast, it's also about trying to better understand the important stories around us. In it, we open up the conversations that we have all the time in our newsroom about what's important and why and what should lead the news. It's the very kinds of conversations that ultimately decide what kind of stories we tell on the slow newscast. The format of the news meeting is that three journalists pitch one story that they think matters most that week. And the editor, this week it's me, decides which one should lead the news. So we thought you'd like to hear it. And if you want to hear more episodes, you can find the news meeting wherever you get your podcasts. And before we start, I should just say that we've collectively decided to steer away from the ongoing story about Hugh Edwards after his wife issued a statement confirming that he is the BBC presenter alleged to have paid a young person for explicit photographs. The police say that there's no case to answer and he is currently in hospital with serious mental health issues. But we've decided not to cover it here because we released a special episode of the news meeting about this story on Tuesday and we covered it on Monday's episode, and today we want to focus on some of the other big stories from the past few days. So let's get on with things. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting
2: a pay increase for public sector workers.
0: We are accepting the headline recommendations of the pay review bodies in full.
3: More than 100 million Americans were under heat alerts Wednesday, with feels like temperatures in the triple digits reported in more than a dozen states.
2: Welcome to you, Vladimir. It's great to have you here.
3: Vladimir
1: Zelensky was welcomed by NATO for the first time as an equal. He wants full membership, but that's impossible while Ukraine's at war. This is such a...
2: Dramatic news. I mean, this is a man who has embodied BBC values, has been the face of the BBC, has held viewers' hands through so many of the kind of momentous, significant parts of our nation's history.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
3: They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free
2: shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Gemma Ware, host of the Conversation Weekly podcast. Each week, I get to speak to some of the smartest people in the world as they connect their new research to the biggest news and issues of today. You'll get a bit of everything from how women are changing North Korea to the emerging science of interoception, our sixth sense, to the importance of intellectual humility. Follow The Conversation Weekly for new episodes every Thursday and read more stories direct from academic experts every day on theconversation.com.
1: I'm joined by our political editor, Kat Neelan. Hello. uh, Our reporter, Claudia Williams. Hello and our reporter, Stephen Armstrong. Hello. Hello, welcome. Um, So you're each going to pitch a story from the past few days that you think really matters, and then we're going to discuss each one, and then I'll pick which one leads. Some of you have also been writing to us, and later we're going to talk about one story that a listener felt that we had missed last week. And if you feel strongly that we've got it wrong or that we're missing something, then you can write to us. We'd love to hear from you. Newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Okay, so let's start with long stories short. To just give us a flavor of what we're gonna talk about in a single sentence. Kat, what's yours? Mine is the never ending story. Hmm Could be many things. (laughs) Uh, Claudia. The ghost boats of the Atlantic. Okay. Stephen?
3: Ten minutes to apocalypse.
1: Okay. Breezy and bright. Okay, so let's start with you. Cat, the never-ending story. Tell us this never-ending story. This delightful
2: (laughs) tale is about how everything is getting more expensive for everyone. The Bank of England has said that mortgage payments are going to rise by at least £500 a month for nearly a million households by the end of 2026. That's on the top of four and a half million homes that have already had increases in their mortgage repayments since uh, late 2021. Um, On Wednesday this week, the average rate on a two-year fixed mortgage hit 6.7%. That's a 15-year high. And as far as we're aware, I mean, the Bank of England has raised rates um, from, it seems crazy now to think about it, 0.1%, those halcyon days, (laughs) in December 2021. They're now at 5%. All the expectations are that it they will go up at least probably another two or three times. And inflation just is not going down. And this is having all sorts of impacts, um, uh, uh, not just on households, although that is what I want to talk about today, but on things like what the government is able to do. Now, obviously, Rishi Sunak made halving inflation one of his five priorities, probably The priority out of those five was to halve inflation. It's sticking at around 7-ish percent, the core inflation, which doesn't include things like food prices. And food prices are accelerating at sort of double digit levels so it's it, you know inflation is is not just a, a sort of flat thing it, it manifests itself in all different ways and the poorest often have the worst impact. so if you think about a sort of packet of pasta for example, basic packet of pasta if it starts out at 50p and it goes up to 75p that's a lot more than an, a fancy packet of pasta going up by 25p on a sort of proportional basis and so that means we're seeing food bank usage go through the roof. So who so who is this hitting then? Is the it younger Exactly. Homeowner? So the vast majority, if you think about the over 65s, I think it's something like three quarters of them own their property outright. If you look at younger people, obviously that goes, that, that, that changes as you get younger. The proportion of people that own their own home outright gets less. And then you have a lot more people that have literally kind of just got onto the ladder, have scraped, you know, kind of over 10 years or so to be able to finally get onto that ladder and now they're thinking oh my god I can't keep up with my payments Um, and and as I say it's not just homeowners it's renters as well the rental rates have gone completely bananas over the last couple of years I mean everyone that I know anecdotally says that and and again it is a double digit increase over the sort of last year or so Um, and so all of this is kind of leading to the reason why I call it this never-ending story is because What can anyone do about it? Rishi Sunak has made it one of his five pledges. It's not something that's in his gift. It's something that's being handled by the Bank of England. And it's something that is affecting how much money he has and the chance that Jeremy Hunt has to actually be able to do stuff to help people. Um, And what is Labour going to do about it? Because a Labour government coming in... You know what options do they have? Mm. Exactly the same options that the current government has.
1: But isn't the problem with this story sort of identified in the way that you've summarised it, which is that it's never ending and that we've known this story has sort of it started? Well, arguably, it started with the mini budget and Liz Truss's short and disastrous time in uh, Number Ten. If we've known about this since last year and the rates are steadily rising, and I think the IMF have predicted that it's only going to get worse. Why is this the moment to say that this story matters? Because more than the this is the
2: point at which it's now higher. Rates are higher than uh, Liz Tr- than they were under the the mini budget era, um, and you know that caused a lot of chaos and a lot of stress for people. And just because it is a slower burn thing doesn't mean it's causing any less chaos and stress for people. When you have a financial crisis like this, people's worlds get smaller. They're just thinking, how can I pay the bills? How can I feed and clothe my kids? They're not thinking about 20 years from now.
1: Claudia, what what do you think about that? Because I I think you rent and your friends all rent, and that's something that affects you much more clearly.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad to hear you mention renters, because I do think in this conversation renters are often missed out. So last month, my landlord or my estate agent got in touch and said that my landlord was going to put up um, my rent by, I think it was over 10%. Um, and they explicitly said, because the interest on the mortgage is going up, therefore, we are passing that over to you, essentially, The the landlord needs to do this.
3: I mean, speaking personally, I think there does seem to be this incredible failure of imagination to even consider ways of attempting this problem in any other way. I mean... For instance, if you look at um, energy prices, we charge all energy at the cost of gas. Now, the vast majority of the day, we are running our energy grid on uh, wind power, which is nine times cheaper than gas. But because of a piece of legislation saying that that wind power must be charged at the cost of gas, uh, we have this enormous inbuilt inflationary price, which doesn't need to be there. That doesn't need interest rate rise. That doesn't need anything. You could just switch to paying for the fuel that you're using and suddenly a vast amount of your energy bill would drop nine times but that it's not hard just change that but there doesn't appear to be a discussion outside of interest rates
1: um let's move on claudia why don't you tell us about the story that you think matters this week yes of course So this week,
0: Walking Borders, who are a Spanish migrant aid organisation, they said that three boats carrying roughly 300 people, including children, have gone missing in the Atlantic Ocean on their way to the Canary Islands. And they apparently left Senegal in late June, and they're taking what is known as the Atlantic route to Europe. And it's one of the most dangerous migrant routes in the world. The journey can take several days, it's about 1000 miles. And there are Strong currents, and the people generally who are doing this route are traveling in wooden fishing vessels that might not have navigation services in the way that you would expect. And that means they can be very hard to track down if something goes wrong. And this area of the world is um, in part the responsibility, the search and rescue responsibility of the Spanish government and also the Moroccan authorities. And on Monday, it was reported that the Spanish Coast Guard had found one of these ships, one of these boats, I should say, and they'd found it with around 80 people on there, which seemed like it was good news, but actually it turned out potentially to be a fourth boat that people didn't even know about, and we don't yet have many details about who the people on that boat were. So it was adding a whole fourth boat into this mix that people... We just didn't know
1: about. But Claudia, from what I've seen about this story, it does look as if there is some confusion about who exactly is missing, where. Some people have denied that that's even happened, even beyond the revelation of that fourth boat. Is that right?
0: Yes, and that is where this story gets quite complicated, I think. So the Senegalese government disputes this whole version of events and it says that these people are no longer missing – and that, in fact, 260 people um, were found alive by the Moroccan authorities earlier in the month before the Spanish Coast Guards even started looking this week. Now, at Walking Border, the aid group I mentioned, they disagree. And they say that these are not the same people. And um, at the time of recording right now, they say that these people are still missing. They say that, according to data, information provided to them by the Moroccan authorities, um, 200, the 260 people who were found, they relate to different boats. So they're quite clear they believe these to be different, different people. Um, and that is what has really grabbed my attention about this story, which is that this this is um this is a commercial airplane's worth of people, right? And these key parties involved in the story, they can't seem to agree on where they are or how they are. And I think that we hear Quite a lot about migration to Europe via the Mediterranean, and we hear less so about the Atlantic route. And that is in part because fewer people take it. Um, But it is twice as deadly. Nearly 800 people have died or gone missing in that strip of ocean um, so far this year. But the data and information that we have is most likely an underestimate. I um, mentioned ghost boats in my headline, and they are these unidentified boats that kind of turn up often in the Caribbean or off the coast of Brazil, that have just drifted for thousands of miles away from this strip of ocean, either empty or potentially filled with the bodies of the people who are trying to get to the Canary Islands and have ended up far on the other side of the Atlantic and with a really tough job for people to identify who they were and where they were trying to go and where they came from. And when the boats are known about in that strip of ocean, aid organizations have accused the Spanish and Moroccan authorities of failing to take responsibility or failing to coordinate together and act quickly enough. Um, in one incident at the end of last month, Reuters reported that Spanish coast guards had um, found a boat carrying 60 people there an hour away, but um, they didn't intervene because Moroccan authorities took over. Um, But Moroccan authorities didn't send a rescue ship for another 10 hours. So that boat of 60 people, recent reports are saying that 30 of them died. And this, to me, is a problem that seems like it is only going to get worse on the micro level, because there's been an uptick in people making this specific crossing compared to this time last year. Um, And also on the macro perspective because the bigger picture forces driving this story of migration around the world they are not going anywhere
1: i'm curious what you think our job as journalists here is beyond reporting the facts because i'm struck by you know a couple of weeks ago i think it was three weeks ago now in within the same seven days the titan submersible Mm. went missing um Obviously, this was the five uh, men in the submersible who were going down to look at the Titanic wreckage, and there was an enormous international response to find them. And just a few days before, a, a vessel had sunk with eight hundred, I believe, people on board um, off the co- fifty miles off the coast of Greece, and there was a big there was a big criticism about how those two cases were covered. That the every single minute, second of the Titan recovery was covered, and arguably the migrant boat that, that ended up sinking a, with a huge loss of life wasn't covered in the same way. What do you think that's a sign of? Where's the problem there, do you think? So I think this highlights
0: maybe one of the fallacies in what we were told about that, that Titan story, which was the reason it's such a big deal is because it's minute by minute. There's a sense of hope. There's, we don't know what the answer will be. People are kind of watching this story unfold. And that could be the case in this, this this situation, but the attention isn't there. Um, I think that there are a number of reasons for that, partly because we report on this area less. Um, I think there's an element of racism involved, the fact that most of the people on these boats are black. That's been flagged a lot on Twitter. I've seen that a lot on social media posts about this, kind of flagging it as a story that hasn't really been picked up. But I do think... The reason why I think specifically, I suppose my pitch for this to be, because because it's hard, right? As journalists, the problem with this story is it's going to keep happening. And how do you, the kind of job for us to work out is, how do you tell that story in a way that makes people care? And how do you tell that story when it's going to keep happening, which mm-hmm. can feel sometimes a bit hopeless? And I think this one, for me, at this point in time, feels like there is still an element of the search and rescue. So There is that there is an element of hope there are people whose families have kind of contacted news organizations and what you can do is you can put a human face to this part of the reason mm-hmm. it can sometimes be so hard to engage with a story like this is because it's the figures are kind of unimaginable
1: mm.
0: um if you pick one family if you say that father with the the three boys you pick that one route and, and you really look at something like this it, it and you keep the pressure up. There is room for amazing investigative journalism, I think, which really can make a difference in the case of the, the Greek um, boat that you mentioned. This week, media organisations have released an investigation into that where they say they've um, found evidence to support the claim of many survivors that actually the Greek Coast Guard...
1: Played a role. Played in, a
0: role in that. Mm. And I think that really flags the opportunity for journalists mm. in this. And I, I and I think kind of So looking it's a sort of the... challenge
1: of storytelling to us rather than... Th- the facts are there, the facts are compelling. It's up to us to make it a story worth following. Kat, what do you think? Because I, I remember 2014, 2015 when the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean was really hitting Europe's shores. Mm. If, if stories like these are, are, are cyclical and they come around every few years because of geopolitical reasons because of economic reasons how do you how do you think we cover this in a way that makes people take notice so i have just given
2: myself chills thinking about the picture of that mm. toddler that was washed up on the shore i think, it's and island I think curdy. yeah and i think um to claudia's point about zeroing in on a particular family that is the way to get to people's heartstrings on this because and I I I defended the coverage of the titan actually I can see why that was a a bigger story because of various elements but one of them being it was a it was a small number of people we knew a lot about them we saw their pictures a lot Mm. and we had that kind of immediacy with them which we didn't have with the hundreds of people on on the boat horrible though that was Um, and so I think Claudia is absolutely right to say if we want to shake people up a bit and make them pay attention it's got to be the personal that drives that
3: I remember when uh, Carola Raquette I'm going to say that name wrong, who was the uh, very young, I think she was in her early 20s, captain of a b- boat called Sea Watch 3, which was one of the rescue boats in the Mediterranean, effectively ran an Italian naval blockade and got her, her rescued um, boat uh, you know the people from the boat who she'd rescued um, onto the shores in Sicily the story gained life because there's this young punk on a boat running the Italian Navy blockade these are the things where you bring it in and it sounds like you're trivialising it but I think that's the point so that we can see people not numbers
1: mm-hmm. well shall we move on to your story then uh, which is very numerical <laughs> <laughs> very numerical and I think maybe no uh, more uplifting I fear
3: <laughs> so the reason I said I mean I was perhaps a little wrong with the 10 minutes but I wanted to portray this as a disaster movie and it does feel a little (laughs) bit like that you get these little signs at the beginning of the film and the heroes noticing the little signs the aliens are coming but no one else particularly notices and it's only when you start to put the signs together that you realize what's going on and there's been some reporting this week of Isolated weather events in the United States of America. The one particular story has been about Phoenix, Arizona, where the temperature has been incredibly high. It's been somewhere in the order of about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, which in real temperatures is 43 degrees C. And the what this has meant is that to just go jogging, you can't go jogging after 4 a.m. because it's too hot, it's dangerous. Your body can't function at what they call the wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees C. Now, that is a complicated thing. It's to do with humidity, like drier temperatures, it can operate higher. Humid temperatures, you operate lower. Uh, But 35 degrees C, you can't cool your body down. So the body starts heating up, and it will not stop, and gradually your organs start to fail. If you're outside for six hours in 35 degrees C, wet bulb temperature, you die. So in the case of Phoenix, Arizona right now, they're shutting the city basically throughout the day. And so you have this kind of desolate, fastest growing city in America, which is dealing with this hot weather incident. And it doesn't look like it's going to end. But also over in Vermont, you have flooding. In Chicago, you have flooding. In New Orleans, there's threats of flooding. There is um, sand from the Sahara blowing over to hit Miami. These are a series of huge weather events that are all happening at once. We don't connect that with the weather conditions in Sudan, where there's been flooding for the last four years, so they haven't really been able to have a harvest for four years. And then when people fleeing the lack of food in Sudan turn up on our shores, going back to the boats... (laughs) We are told that they're drug dealers. So what we're not doing is looking at the the weather events which are just gradually gathering together. We expect there to be 60 days of potentially fatal heat in southern Europe this year. There were 60,000 deaths in southern Europe at the end of last year. Um, In July of last year, the London Fire Brigade had its busiest day since the Blitz these things are all connected. They're all inextricably connected. What we are on right now is at the beginning of something called El Nino. So there is a weather pattern over the Pacific. The cold pattern is El Nina, and then the hot pattern is El Nino. And each one lasts three years. This is the beginning of a three-year period of increasing heat. And we. this is the beginning. And we're reaching a point where there are fatal temperatures in the United States of America, coupled with fatal flooding in the United States of America. We know more about that because they've got a better media system than they do in sub-Saharan Africa. But it's in sub-Saharan Africa that people are dying as a result of this.
1: Claudia, did you, when you were um, thinking about the story of migration along the Atlantic route, did you look at whether climate change was one of the push factors that might be encouraging people to get on those boats? Yeah, I did. And I think at the moment, most of um, climate driven
0: migration is actually internal um, within Africa, but also kind of around the world. That's generally internal and it's moving to be cross border. Um, and so actually it's something that you, you mentioned drought driven migration, but that's something that could triple this century if we continue as things are. And particularly in um, sub-Saharan Africa Central and South America
1: and South Asia. It's really interesting because I feel like all three of these stories that we've talked about today are, are these are the types of stories that are enormous, slow-moving, tectonic kind of news stories that are rumbling always in the background. And the challenge for us is to find the moments in which we can dig into them and bring them to the surface. The issue of climate change, migration and financial policy and ha- inflation feel like the sorts of things that are always bubbling away in the news and the challenges at what point do you say this really matters at this moment so shall we go around Kat what do you think should lead this week
2: Um, well I always have a natural aversion to climate change stories no offence Stephen just because (laughs) you don't um, like the apocalypse uh, it terrifies me uh, understandably Um, I, I I always want a news story, and perhaps this is my failing, actually, I want there to be a sense of agency. I want there to be something that I can think, right, that's wrong. I need to do something about that or we need to force some change on that and the problem with climate change I feel is just it's so overwhelming I don't know what we can do about it what me as an individual or even us as a society can do about it it's a global issue we've talked about it ad nauseum the people that know what they need to do know what they need to do they aren't doing it or if they are it's not enough and and therefore I'm left feeling like great we're all gonna die that's good (laughs) So So not that one. So by default <laughs> <laughs> Oh it's a hollow win. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, Claudia. I've made managed to make no friends in that 30 seconds.
1: It will be Claudia. <laughs> On migration. Claudia, what do you think?
0: Uh I actually really don't know. And that is for the, the reason that you say that these are two big issues that are sometimes hard to grab hold of. I agree with what you say about climate stories. I, what I actually like about this story, firstly, I think the the framing of the film is very useful, um, but where the patterns are really visual and the imagery mm-hmm. of the flooding and the heat and even, you know, you're talking about the, the temperatures and things like that, I can feel it. It's very visceral. Um, and it's one of the really clear examples of how this is going to impact all of us. So I think for that reason, I've talked myself out of something that I instinctively feel impacts huge numbers of people in this country, including me. (laughs) And maybe just because I've heard that story. I I think we've heard actually all of these stories Mm. a lot. And the visual element of um,
2: climate change makes me think that this is the time for that story. We haven't heard your story a lot, which is the other reason to have it. We haven't heard about these ghost ships and... Yeah. Well, I couldn't
1: possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're not allowed to vote for your own. Stephen, what do you well, think? Well, I think
3: these are all the same story. And I think they are my story, of course. <laughs> but I think
1: that's winning by default, which I'm not sure is allowed. Yeah, I know. I'm um, cheating,
3: <laughs> really. But I'm personally more directly affected by the mortgage one. But um, I do think that the boats, I am emotionally entangled in that boat story in a way that I find deeply unsettling. So I'm going to go with the boats.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I'll try and... Mm, figure out what I think. So I think they're all really compelling arguments this week and I think what's interesting is that we know the story that has led the week and we've purposefully not chosen it because we've covered it already, which is the BBC Fiore and the BBC presenter. And so I think we've naturally landed on three really big, slow-moving stories that you've all made really compelling arguments for why this is the moment to look at them. I think... Despite also being personally affected by mortgages and, and rents, in fact, everyone in this room is, I think that I, I'm i not sure this is the moment. I know we've reached a milestone, which is a 15-year high in mortgage rates. I know we had the IMF warning this week that says it's going to get a lot worse. Um, but I think that's been – we've known this story is coming our way since autumn last year. And, and I think the material conditions – We're going to peak at 5%. <laughs> if it's true that it will go up another percent, it may even be worse than that, and I think you're right to argue that this is a, this is the type of story that directly affects people, and therefore we should take notice of it but i was I'm not sure that this is the moment it leads um sorry, cat, you look very disappointed at me I'm so used to coming third <laughs> um and then somewhat controversially, maybe because James is away, and I'm just the the substitute today um I actually think that in second and and first place is a combination of the two. Ooh, I'm outrageous. not I'm not messing with the system too much, but I think, I think that Claudia, I would lead with with the ships for two reasons. One is because I think that we are as you say, at the beginning of a new phase in the migration cycle, and this is all about to get a lot worse. And I think there is a challenge to us as journalists to figure out how we're going to report this, because as Stephen made the point, this is only going to get worse because the big thing that is underpinning all of this is climate change and a climate catastrophe. And if we cannot figure out how to make each of these stories matter to us now in the present then we've got an even bigger reporting problem coming for us in the future. I think um, particularly, I think those two things are connected. Stephen, I would say that the thing that sort of tilted me towards Claudia's story is that you made the good point that the problem with covering migration is that it can feel faceless and and without sort of a human story and then I felt that you pitched a sort of a, a networked story that was happening all o- around the world. And I think to Kat's point, it's really difficult sometimes to make, to pick a way through how overwhelming that is. The
3: movie trick didn't fool you then.
1: The movie trick was very <laughs> good, but it, it didn't quite get me there. So I think my running order would be the ghost ships as a way of telling the story of what is coming for us and figuring out how do we understand migration and what's coming for us in the future. Um, And I think particularly when you set it against the story of the Titan, I know that's not a fair comparison, but I think what you said about, you know, the conditions of that mystery, making people want to follow it, why then would we not follow a very similar mystery um, that's happening on a bigger scale? I think in in sort of close second is is how climate feeds into that migration story. And then in third uh, is mortgages and inflation. Before we finish, I said at the top of this podcast that we'd had a letter from a listener who said that we had missed something uh, last week. And she's called Jenny. She's from Edinburgh. And I think it's worth us just quickly talking through what what she said. So uh, she wrote to say, thanks for your excellent podcast, which has quickly become one of my must-listens. Oh, thank you. So we will we'll include the praise. Um, but she said, respectfully, I think that you missed a major story this week. It's Mari Black, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But she said, respectfully, I think that you missed a major story this week. Mari Black, MP, deciding not to stand for election to the UK Parliament again is a significant development. Her rationale that she finds it a sexist, archaic place to work that's heavily implied to be bad for her mental health speaks to the health or otherwise of our democracy. I found it powerful and a bit of a wake-up call that she mentioned the murder of two MPs in her statement and her family's fears for her. Surely a major moment in a country that ostensibly wants more young female working class MPs. I'd love to hear your take on this story. Kat, political editor, what do you think?
2: I couldn't agree more, but sadly I was not invited to last week's uh, (laughs) news meeting. And no doubt I would have come first if I'd have picked that. Um, But yes, I mean, I I think it is a huge problem because even if you think, oh, well, Crimea River, poor MPs, they, you know, have the life of luxury this is this has repercussions for our democracy because I look at that and think there's no way in hell I would want to be an MP and a lot of other people are doing the Mm. same and particularly for women and we are kind of going through a bit of a sort of a a backward step you know there were a lot of initiatives to try and get women into parliament They are struggling now because people look at that and think, why would I do it? Okay, £80,000 is a lot of money, but to high achieving people that you might want to attract, it's not that much. Lots of people say they have to take a pay cut to do it. So they're doing it ostensibly for public service. Um, Why would you put yourself through that? It's not just you. It's your partner as well. So after that, you know, if something kind of happens, you have to contact your husband, wife, whoever, Mm -hmm. and say, just to let you know, the police are having to send a car by just to make sure everything's okay
1: well thank you jenny for writing in and uh, telling us about that and thank you to you three to kat claudia and stephen thank, thank you, you very you. much thank you very much if you disagree with my decision this week or you've got a story like jenny does that you think should be leading the news or you think that we should be discussing do send us an email at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. james of course will be back for another episode as usual On Monday. Thanks for listening. Tortoise.
3: How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible? How are we gonna do that? I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or
1: wherever you listen to podcasts.